Well, uh, man, it's probably time to get started. Good to see you. Uh, we're still in Philippians 2. <laughs> and uh, those of you, perhaps, that have been a, a few weeks since you were here, probably when you left, we were still in Philippians 2. But it's, uh, it's one of the more remarkable and rich chapters in the, in the book uh, of Philippians and really in the Bible because it, it focuses on uh, some theology about Jesus, uh, which we covered, And now we're in the application of that. And yesterday, uh, excuse me, um, last week we spent the entire hour on verse 13. The week before that we spent the entire hour on verse 12. So at the rate we're going, we'll get out of chapter 2 in about 2016. So uh, I'm not sure. Can I borrow this? Uh, I'll tell you what. Left mine in the car. Let me give you this one. I won't won't mark it. I won't write it. If you do, that's fine. All right, let's um, let's think about this for a couple of minutes. And Dave still got his hat and gloves on, and I'm hot and taking my jacket off. I'm <clears throat> but that's my wife. We're in the family room. We have the fireplace on. I'm sitting there in shorts and a t-shirt, and she's sitting there, sitting wrapped in a blanket. And, uh, probably you guys have been there, haven't you? So let's. I want to read twelve, thirteen. 14 and then start 15. This has to be done as a unit. And because we are so um, uh, separated by week after week after week, sometimes we lose the train of thought. After he has taught this wonderful section about Jesus, 5 through 11, as our model of humility, model of servanthood, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for, or you could translate that, because God is at work in you, both to will and to do, of his good pleasure. That's a very, very, very important two verses. It's focusing on sanctification. It's focusing on the process of God uh, transforming us into his image. It's the process of what God's doing. We work because God works. Then he says, as now he applied, what does this look like? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And we spent a lot of time last week on that. And it's, uh, I mean, it's convicting because we talked about what grumbling, murmuring, complaining, and what disputing, the interpersonal relationship breakdown that can occur. Now verse 15, if we live that way, Please note the first word of verse 15 is that. That's introducing a purpose clause. I I don't mean to get highly grammatical here, but sometimes that really helps us to understand the connection of the verses. So if we live that way, without grumbling, without disputing, what do we we see? You may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. There's a lot in that verse. Now, let's, let's take it apart this way, okay? If you look in the middle of the verse, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Crooked and perverse generation. That's actually right out of the Old Testament. That, that phrase is used in the Old Testament many times about Israel. Israel is in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation. If you, I mean, you know enough about the history of the Old Testament. They're just surrounded by pagan nations everywhere. And it's crooked, it's perverse, but they're to be the representatives of God. So he's taking that phrase out of the Old Testament and saying, that applies to you guys too. Now, let's just hypothesize for a minute. Let's just imagine for a minute. Would you use crooked and perverse generation to describe 2014? I wouldn't have much difficulty using that phrase to describe the world in which we live. It's very crooked, and I mean, that's not hard to figure out what that figure means, but I mean, instead of it being straight and following the clear moral uh, and ethical will of God and incorporating his values into everything, it's just the opposite. It's crooked, it's perverse, it's distorted, it's dysfunctional. 
And so in every sense of that meaning, that's you and that is I. All right, now, if that's the given, then what's our role? Can you see anything in that verse that describes our role in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? Light. Uh, Joel, what does that's figure speech, but lights, what does that communicate to you? Um, what comes to your mind? Showing the way, revealing um, darkness, spelling darkness. Okay, all of those fit. That's pretty formidable assignment, isn't it? We're lights in the midst of darkness, perverse, crooked generation. Joel used uh, uh, exactly how he, he said dispels darkness. What does that mean? Well, uh, you have a dark room and you introduce light, the darkness is yeah. there. Yeah. It illuminates. It illuminates. It, it really overcomes. It exposes. Um, darkness generally in the scriptures is not a positive term at all. It's a very negative term. But light's a very positive term. So, again, he's using a phrase that is all over the scriptures. With the light of, remember what Jesus said? You're the salt of the earth and light of the world. So the author, Paul, is doing exactly the same thing. You're, you're light. All right, now, I'm trying to get you to make sure you're, you're following these very significant figures of speech so that we can go back to verse beginning of verse 15 and see what our assignment is. referring to our faith and referring to our walk with God and so on. What, what, what is being referred to there? What do I mean by that? Our position in Christ. What do I mean by that? Being sanctified. Justified. Okay. Wow. You're, yeah. Wow. You are really... Aren't you impressed with Joe? He just jumps right on. He uses this big theological word. We're justified. And that is absolutely correct. Now, review, this is one of those terms that, as Joe just said, it should just flow right out of you. It should be on the tip of your tongue when you think of your position in Christ. You're justified. You have been declared righteous. And that's just, that's the whole theme of Romans chapter 6, especially. But it's kind of all over the book of Romans. But that's your position. That's who you are in Christ. Now, the practice end of that is I am being transformed into the image of Christ who is righteous so this is an event this is a process and these two are inextricably linked these two are connected now thinking that way look at verse 15 the beginning that you may prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children. Based on what we've written up here, what's that referring to? Blameless and innocent. Position. This is who you are. And by exhibiting what we discussed last week in verse 14, you're giving evidence, you're proving, you're demonstrating, you're manifesting your position. Does that make sense? <clears throat> what, this is not a biblical phrase 
but it's paraphrasing a powerful biblical concept. Practice what you are. Does that make sense? Or another way of saying it, live what you are. Who am I? My identity is in Christ. I, that's my position. Everything that I do, that phrase in Christ or in Christ Jesus, is used 217 times in the New Testament. And obviously if it's used that many times, that's pretty important. And it's defining our identity. This is who we are. We, uh, and I totally understand why we do that, and it's appropriate. But usually, especially among men, the very first question you ask somebody after you meet them is, what do you do for a living? And almost always, what that really is saying is, that's, that's kind of the key part of your identity, isn't it? You know, I'm a carpenter. I'm an insurance salesman. I sell real estate. I'm a doctor. I'm an attorney. I mean, just on and on and on and on, all the different things people do for a living. That's my identity. But you know what? That's not a biblical concept. And I'm not saying that isn't important. Goodness, you, you know I'm not saying that. What the Bible is saying to us and what Scripture is saying to us and what I think God is saying to us through his word is your identity is in Christ. Your relationship with him is the key source of everything you are. And therefore, as you do your job, do your work, pursue your vocation, so you're doing to his glory what you do. 1 Corinthians 10.31. So the author, Paul, is, is what he's doing here is he's saying, as you do all things without grumbling or disputing, you're proving. You're exhibiting, you're manifesting your position as blameless and innocent before God. Children above reproach. Jim just asked the question, proving to whom? So let's answer that. Crooked and perverse generation? Yeah. Certainly in the context of this verse, to the crooked and perverse generation, there's lights. I mean, you're manifesting, you're demonstrating. You're demonstrating who you are. Did you ever hear anybody say, you know, sometimes, the only gospel people will ever read is you. Did you ever hear anybody say that? Yeah. that that's, that's what this is saying. That's why, and, and this is the connection that the Apostle Paul is making here. How we live our lives is very, very, very important. Let's put it another way that's kind of a saying. Your walk should match your talk. I study under a guy, I think I've mentioned this to you before, but I studied under a guy when I was in grad school in, in seminary, Howard Hendricks, and he used to say, men, men, listen. I was in a group with him, and he just said, men, listen, if you're not going to be serious about your walk with Jesus, do everybody a favor. Don't tell anybody. Now, you know, I mean, that, I, I don't know if you know even Hendricks is with the Lord now, but he just it's incredible humor that he would interject into profound thoughts that just said, well, i got to think about that for about a year, uh, you know. But, I mean, what he's saying with humor and maybe a little bit of exaggerated uh, uh, language for impact, he's really saying it matters how you live your life. Because if people know you're a Christian and you don't live that way or you're not demonstrating the kind of values and morals and ethical standards that are important to our God... You're probably sending such a horrible message that, <laughs> you know, how you live. And I, I, you know, I hope you understand what I'm saying and what I think Paul is saying. It matters. And it, it's, it's indicating who we are. So it matters how we live. And then I want to take apart that little phrase, above reproach. What, is, what does the verb reproach, what does reproach mean? It's not a word that we use a lot. I, I'm not sure I can remember the last time I heard anybody ever use that in a sentence. But what does reproach mean? Accused. Accused, to be accused of something. So to be above reproach, what's, what's that saying to us? 
be in a position where you, there's no grounds for uh, accusation. Yeah. You're yeah. immune to it. Say again? You're immune to it. All right. What would be... What would be a single word that might capture all that's involved in being above reproach? Be a person of integrity. Now, again, today that's somewhat of an abused word. People mean a lot by it. But it's a good word. It's a very good word. It's a fine word. So he's saying to us, as you manifest and demonstrate and illustrate and live out your position... The goal of your practice should be above reproach. I will be a person of integrity. Let's put that another way. In how we live our lives, our standards are very, very high. Not because we're earning God's favor. We already have that. That's what our position's all about. But now we're living out the values and morals and ethical standards of our God, which means I'm above reproach. I read this in uh, Pollock's biography of Billy Graham years ago, and, and it, it impressed me because it, it stuck with me. That's why I'm going to use it. But when Graham, uh, you, know, you, you know who I mean, don't you? Everybody knows who Billy Graham. Okay. When Graham, now he's, you know, he's ill now, he's in his 90s, and, but so on. When he was very active, um, he traveled. You know, that was part of what he did. And every time he would go into a hotel room, he would have one of his staff go into the hotel room first to make sure that there wasn't anyone in there setting up some kind of a photograph that would be compromising and would in any way reflect on his integrity. Pollock says in the same chapter where he's dealing with his character, he says when his taxes are done every year, his accountant says, now, Billy, I, here's, here's something you could probably do. The law is a little unclear on this, but you could probably take this deduction. And Graham would say, pay it. Pay it. I don't want any question because my, my tax statements will be public documents at some time or another. Just pay it. I don't want any question. That's above reproach living. And it's kind of, you have to think, wow, that is, that's a, but that, that's kind of the standard that we set because that's the standard of our Lord. And so Paul is just really laying out here an enormous challenge for us. We live in a crooked and perverse generation. We're lights. Okay, what does being a light look like? You prove yourself blameless and, 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 uh, um, and innocent, who you are. And your standards in practice and how you live your life is my standards above reproach. When you look at the New Testament qualifications for spiritual leadership in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the header for both of them is be above reproach. So when you start looking for church leaders, standard number one is above reproach. You don't want somebody who has questionable character, someone who, ooh, boy, I don't know. You know, if you're if you're having those kind of questions, probably not not a, a person that you'd want to think about for a major leadership position. All right, does that make sense? This is a, this is an immensely challenging verse for me. That we live in a, a perverse and, and and crooked generation that's a given, but we're to be light. And what does that look like? All right, the challenge is before us. <laughs> Absolutely. So on one hand, I mean, there's something that about this that says, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, that it would, how do I say this, you, you could edge a little bit more uh, into the crooked and perverseness without ever becoming, you know, I mean, you, it would be more accepted, I guess is what I'm saying. On the other hand, it becomes much more challenging because of all of that, to live a you know, blameless life. Yeah, to, to live out our, our position and who we are in Christ. Well, I, Jim, I think that's the challenge that we face now in, in America particularly, in the United States particularly. Um, the Christian faith and the Christian set of assumptions, if, if I can put it that way, not necessarily mean every single citizen was a believer, but the Christian assumptions were just a given part of our culture. And it was kind of easy to fit in and, 
you know, whether you were a, a dramatic and dynamic person of faith or not, you just easily fit in. That's not true anymore. It is very, very difficult to, to live in our culture without constantly butting your head against values, morals, and ethical standards that are an absolute abomination to God. I'm putting that very strongly. I hope you don't mind me doing that. And so, I mean, it, it, it really now, today, means something to be a person of a Christian faith who the scriptures mean something to you, and those scriptures, which are God's word, are shaping your values, your morals, and your ethical standards. Because when the culture pretty much bought into all of those, it wasn't that difficult to be a light. Because you're just kind of going with a culture. You're not going with a culture anymore. As this is not original thought with me, Christians today, I mean, genuine believers who are committed to God, and, and through Jesus Christ, his, his word is important. Him shaping their values. You're countercultural today. The culture is going this way. We're going this way. And the question remains for us is how do we connect with this culture? What does it mean for me to live in that kind of culture? I'm, you know, I'm the oldest one in this room. So I'm, you know, I'm on the other end of life. But I look at my children and I'm thinking what they're going to face as they, I mean, you know, they're Johnson is 32 and Joanna's 26, but they're just getting started in their life. I, when I look back over the last 20 years, what has happened in American culture, and I think of the next 20 years, I just, oh my, it's going to really be interesting. <laughs> I'll be in a retirement community somewhere if I'm still alive then. And, but my kids, you know, they're going to still be very involved raising their kids and all that kind of stuff. That's important that we be the light as best we can because they'll remember that example like it's yeah, yeah, absolutely. even if we haven't spoken to them directly a number of times they'll remember how we did it. Yeah, absolutely. And in many ways that's really what teaching and modeling is. It isn't only saying it's, it's what we live. Yeah. Father? <clears throat> And I'm not sure I'm, this isn't uh, just an issue with me, but I'm re- I really struggle today with the culture we're living in and to live my position. Mm. And yeah, the, uh, the secular world is, is just pressing down and just, I'm, I'm, right now I'm just struggling with it immensely and yeah. um, you know I have to keep reminding myself <coughs> several times a day when I'm interacting with people to live my position mm. and mm. it's I don't know it's just it's getting harder every day I think wouldn't you agree one of the reasons getting harder it's it's becoming more costly and obviously I don't mean financially costly but although yeah. it could be that but it's becoming more costly just because the culture is going so rapidly in this direction in so many areas and you and I are saying no, no, wait a minute and so it it is it is it's more and more uncomfortable and more and more costly and more and more irritating and more and more annoying and that's my daughter's favorite word, more and more annoying. You know. it, just, it is because we, I just honestly, and I mean this very sincerely, in the last 15 years, where American culture has gone, like from here to there in so many areas, I, I'm just astonished. I, I just can't believe it. And especially in the areas of, and I don't only mean same-sex marriage, I mean just accommodating to all kinds of areas of sexuality. And all kinds of uh, just tolerating and accommodating and accepting. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's astonishing. And it's shocking. It's way beyond um, even people who aren't believers and study these things, especially like sociology. They're astonished too. And people who don't give a hoot about Christianity say, the accommodation of the American civilization to things that, in the entire history of civilization, were regarded as unacceptable, and now that just doesn't matter. It's 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 absolutely shocking, and nobody can figure it out. 
well, I honestly don't think it's that hard to figure out. <laughs> the downward spiral is very evident in Scripture. You depart from the values, morals, and ethical standards of God. And, I mean, you willfully and intentionally depart. The downward spiral starts and it accelerates. Do you have evidence of that in human history? Of course. Oh, my goodness. You have 5,000 years of it, and there's a lot of choices that you can cite. I was going to offer a word to encourage you, but I'm working, um, you know, in my career, I'm working into more and more leadership. And I have noticed, though, less polarization and even an attraction to somebody who's living out their faith, Mm -hmm. even in a secular environment, because it's such a contrast to the darkness. And, you know, most of the what comes out in leadership that's written in books isn't really much new or novel, but living out the word seems new and novel because nobody's doing it. Mm-hmm. And and I doubt I'm the only one, but I've just had a tremendous opportunity in the past couple of years of men and women, both sides, younger or older than me, that when they see that, they're attracted to that, whether mm-hmm. they're seeking Christ or not. And they view it as leadership, but we have an opportunity to combine it with Christ like living and then living out the gospel. So our culture certainly isn't moving that direction, but it presents kind of a, a new clear opportunity for many. Um, and so then the prayer is to live faithfully and that God would draw those people. So I'm kind of enthused about that right now because I'm just getting opportunities like that everywhere. Well, I've had opportunities like that, but before I retired, it was just <coughs> phenomenal what how that works. Uh, in the workplace, mm. and um, I was so encouraged by that, and mm. I still am to a large degree, because uh, I sort of contact a lot of those people, mm. and other people around me, but it is, uh, it's quite amazing, it's it's such a contrast that they are drawn to it, they are drawn to it. I, I think uh, what both you and Ty have just said is, is that distinct contrast mm-hmm. that is so telling. Um, over the years I've had a number of men and I've largely worked with men I don't think it's wise to work with women in mentoring or discipleship relationships but there's a guy here in this city who has come to faith Joel knows who he is who has come to faith in Christ and he the change that is becoming evident in his life his father is noticing it and he was telling me Sunday night his father many of you would know his name but his, his father is older, he's got some heart issues, but he's still very, very active in business, still very, very active in the community. And he and his dad, every Sunday morning, have coffee. They live right next to each other and had coffee. And he was over there and he said, Dad, because his dad is saying, when you die, that's all there is. And he, he has the courage, it's just amazing. He was telling, I still can't believe he did this. He has the courage to say to his dad, Dad, what if you're wrong? I mean, if you know, I think Joel again knows who he is, but if you can imagine him saying this to his father, who's a very powerful man, a very influential man, Dad, what if you're wrong? And then he said, because, Dad, when we die, I want you with me. And this, this broke his dad. His dad started crying. And he hugged him, and this man doesn't hug and it's just there again he is being light he's he's saying something that connects with who he is and he had the courage to say to his father dad what if you're wrong which is a great question isn't it that's a great question and so if you look at the next verse then how are we light and how do we prove who we are the, the, the connection of verse 16 is explains now how you do it. By holding fast the word of life. Ty is saying, by holding fast the word of life, you live above reproach, but that becomes an attraction. You're holding fast the word of life. The word of God is informing my values, my morals, my ethical standards. And when we do that, as Ty correctly said, it stands out more dramatically now than in recent history because the culture is just going in such an opposite direction. 
And so it's really, it's, it's really, it's kind of a neat image because you think of light, and you can see what Paul's doing here. You think of light in the world, well, you hold forth a light. That's what he's saying. Well, what's the light? The word of God, the word of light, the word which produces eternal life. That's how you would really paraphrase that. So you start, oh man, okay, this really makes sense. Dave, Erwin McManus speaks, <clears throat> he speaks of the um, divine appointments that God gives you in your day. And many times those divine appointments are very simple, innocuous things, but sometimes they're really, really dramatic. Where somebody says to you, I've been watching you for the last two years. And there is something about you, how you live your life, the way you make decisions. About I, what, explain that to me. Well, goodness, there is an opportunity to hold fast the word of life, not only in how you live, but in speaking it. Tremendous opportunity. All right. <clears throat> What's your takeaway from the class today? How you live matters. Thank you, Jim. That's a good way to put it. How you live matters. I think, um, you know, again, Paul says here, um, for references the crooked and perverse generation, and Peter says, mm. uh, you know, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Mm. I think it's important to just think about it. it's not, not just an article around this table or in our church. <clears throat> When you're in your comfortable circles, right. those concentric circles of life, when you're in your comfortable circles, yeah, sometimes the most dramatic impact can be outside those circles. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. So our takeaway is it matters how we live. To quote the esteemed Dr. Beck, he's right. He's, he's nailed it. Notice what he says at the other part of chapter 16, though. Not chapter, I mean verse 16, excuse me. So that result clause. As I'm holding forth the word of life, that's my norm, that's my pattern of living. So that, in the day of Christ, now let's stop there for a minute. The day of Christ is a phrase that's used throughout the New Testament. What is it referring to? What is the day of Christ? Okay, you have the end of the world and when he returns, okay? Wow, great. Um, both are, are, are correct. They are wrapped around the events of the end of history, the end of the world. Um, but the day of Christ is something very specific within that matrix of events. When Christ comes back, um, when you know, he defeats his enemies and all of the things that are associated with end time teaching. But the day of Christ is something very specific within that matrix of I want to use matrix, you think of a movie. That's a complex of events that are a part of when Christ comes back. The day of Christ refers to, among many other passages, what he teaches in 2 Corinthians 5.10. The day of Christ is not the great white throne judgment. When unbelievers are called account to account for for, for their lives. 2 Corinthians 5.10 is when believers appear before Jesus. It seems that this is connected with rewards. Okay? So, Paul is saying so that in the day of Christ. I don't want to finish the verse yet. He applies it to himself. Um, God bless you. 
But I guess he's already doing that, so you just want him to continue <laughs> to do that. Okay. Confirmed it. Okay. Um, when you see Jesus, what would you like to hear him say to you? Good and faithful servant. Ah. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Enter the kingdom that's been prepared for you from for the foundation of the world. But well done. If you take away anything from this this morning, that's what I want you to think about. I'd like, to, if I could, to stay away from a lot of the details of this, okay, if, if that would be all right with you. I guess if it isn't all right and you really want to probe it, we'll, we'll dig into it. But it, is a t- it has nothing to do with sin in the sense of, of the eternal condemnation. When we put our faith in Christ, that's taken care of. The cross is the judgment of our sin. We appropriate that when we put our faith in Christ to our lives. So it would seem to me, if I've understood all this teaching in the New Testament correctly, this is to be a motivation for living. This is a motivation for it matters how we live type of teaching. I want to stand before the Lord and hear him say, well done. You did what I asked you to do. You were faithful. That's what he's talking about here. This is the motivation. This is one of the motivations. How so? Let's talk about that. How, how is this a motivation for living the kind of life that is pleasing to the Lord. It, you know, it matches with his values, his morals, his ethical standards. It's reflecting who he is and all that. Why, why is that? Is it, that not sounds to me like it's kind of selfish. And I thought we aren't to be selfish and self-centered. Can anybody help me think through that? This, by the way, this is what's called class participation. Mm-hmm. But what do, you, what do you think? How, how do we... It seems is this it seems like it's contradictory. We're supposed to be selfless and servant and, and not thinking of ourselves and so on. And here that in the day of Christ, the scriptures talk about this, that we're gonna stand with the Lord and so to hear him say, Well done, that sounds selfish. How do we make that into a very strong positive motivator for righteous living? Well, I, I would say that in the well done while it may sound selfish, is actually reflective of a life that has been used in a way that has helped others advance the gospel, uh, brought glory to God, and other things. So, I mean, the well done is not so much kind of an egotistical salve as it is a recognition of Mm. a life that has made a difference. Okay. Okay. And in living a life like that had that makes a difference who is getting the credit for that the lord is so it isn't selfish let's think of it another way it's a little bit of a different angle but i think it gets just to the same same point the bible is filled with commands i mean the the book one of my favorites the book of james half of the book is nothing but commands and a command is to be obeyed. So here's the issue. Why do I obey the Lord? Because he has a sword of Damocles hanging over my, you know what that is? A sword of, have you ever heard of that? You know, somebody that's going to hammer us into submission. You get out of line, I'm going to hammer you. Is that the Lord? Is that the reason I obey? Maybe, but what's, what, does the, what do the scriptures encourage us to do? Why do we obey the Lord? We're his created beings and he's prepared works for us before him to accomplish. That's certainly true. Um, and that is part of that complex of obedience. But why? What's motivating me to be obedient to the Lord? Please him. To please him. Make it stronger. Honor. Make it stronger. <laughs> 
Okay. Keep. Well, remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15. If you love me. Actually, it's a first class condition. We should really translate that. Since you love me, obey my command. So our obedience now, and just think of how um, utterly revolutionary that would have been for a Pharisee to hear that. Because their whole approach to God was, I'm obeying the 613 commandments that we have itemized from the Old Testament because that's how we earn God's favor. And it's already been established that isn't how you earn God's favor. That has nothing to do with it. It's all of grace. So now, why do I obey the Lord? Why do I why do I seek to live my life without grumbling or disputing? Why do I seek to prove my position um, that I'm blameless and above reproach? Why? Why do I do all these things? Because I love him. And because I love him, I desire to obey him. And so to desire to obey him means to please him and to honor all those other words that we used here a moment ago. And then that that becomes the natural result. I love him. I love to obey him because as I live that life, he is getting the glory for all of this. I mean, there's just so many little tentacles you could connect here. Let's, let me think with you about another way of, 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 of approaching this. <clears throat> My own personal conviction is, and I don't know if you would all agree with me on this, but my own personal conviction is guilt is the worst motivator there is for permanent transformational change in a person's life. I can manipulate, and I can do a lot to make Jim really feel guilty. And you get, okay, all right, I'll do it. All right, yes, you know, you can do that with children. And to a degree, it's, as they're beginning, it's, it's, you have to help them understand what wrong is and so on. But in our relationship with the Lord, guilt is something the Holy Spirit uses to convict us of sin. But guilt is not what transforms us. It's love for the Lord that transforms us. Do you see the distinction? I think that's a very healthy distinction to make. Guilt is not, guilt is not a good motivator for permanent change. I can manipulate and heap all kind of guilt on you and you will be crushed and you will do it then. A, a parent is going to develop the kind of relationship with their child where what is really motivating the child is love from mom and dad. Now, again, it's just kind of a fine line here, but that permanent transformational change. And I think that's why Jesus says to us, since you love me, not since you feel guilty, now obey. Since you love me, obey. Could we uh, we also like? A, there's a lot of reasons to obey him. I believe, and uh, mm-hmm. one of them might be, I think, because we feel his love, because he sent his son right. to die for our sins. Right. Absolutely. And that's a response of love to his love, Woody. That's absolutely correct. And it's in that context that actually Jesus says those words. In effect, uh, paraphrasing, because of everything I've done for you, which demonstrates my unconditional love for you, let's walk in love and obey me. It's a, very, it's a significant difference in motivating us. I think the love he's talking about too is like what the scripture says, is, you know, your heart, mind, and strength. It's mm. just your whole being. It's everything about mm. you. Mm. Absolutely. Our love and devotion is, is holistic. It's every aspect. Yeah, absolutely. So getting back to this idea of the day of Christ, this is to motivate us to the kind of living that is being discussed in this section because we do want to please him. We do want to honor him. And when we stand before him, to hear him say, oh, well done, well done. That's a motivator, isn't it? That's a motivator for us that it matters how we live our lives. 
And Paul then, he gets very personal. It almost sounds incredibly selfish. For in the day of Christ, I may have caused the glory because I didn't run in vain or toil in vain. <laughs> Remember, this is a church he planted. This is a church Philippi. It's a church he planted. It's a church he loves. It's a church he's invested a lot in. And he says, in the day of Christ, I'm going to be right there with you. It's almost like a parent saying, that I didn't run in vain. I didn't toil in vain. So that's turning around. It's the same thing. He's also wanting them to be motivated by Paul's desire to be pleased with what they've done, how they lived their lives. All right? Okay, I'm assuming it's all right because nobody's responding. <laughs> then he uses some Old Testament language. It's, it's kind of hard. It's almost obscure, but it really isn't in verse 17. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with all of you. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. All right, now let's just think about what he's talking about. You have to really understand the Old Testament here, and this is where it can be a little difficult. One of the things that the Old Testament talks about is a burnt offering, the burnt offering that was placed in the altar, burned, and then a drink offering was poured over that. Okay, I don't know if you're following. You have to go back to Leviticus and get that described. But that's what he's saying. You're, you're the burnt offering, and I am being poured out as a drink offering over you. And what is he referring to? Because I, I'm in prison because of the gospel, and you're evidence of me preaching the gospel, you're the sacrifice to the Lord of the work that I've done, and I'm being poured out, even though I'm in prison upon you, and that's a cause for all of us to rejoice. That's what he's saying. All of this is a part of what God is doing. Let's rejoice. Let's rejoice together, and let's share the joy with one another. I mean, it's, just, it's really astonishing, isn't it? Paul's in prison as a bink are being poured out over them. And he says, this is a great thing because the gospel's being spread and we're in this together and you're koinoniaing with me in this, as he said in chapter 1. And this is Paul in prison. He's all excited about this stuff. I wouldn't be, would you? It's, just, it's, it's an amazing commentary on his perspective on things. Be faithful because you're my spiritual children. And I want to stand with you before the Lord. And you will be a reflection of my ministry like even now I'm in prison because of you guys and the gospel and we're just in this together. Hooray, hooray, let's rejoice and praise the Lord together. I think too, you look at the disciples, I mean, they ran away then, you know, after, after you know, they saw the risen Christ and then the, their whole life changed. I mean, they were radical for it. Absolutely. Beforehand, they were they could they could hide and scatter, you know. But after they after, of course, they were given the Holy Spirit. And yeah, it all changed for them. They were radical, yeah. I mean, you know. They were radical. And the things that they did for them. very much so, very much so. Ben Hayden, who's been dead now for I used to have a radio program. He used to say the greatest evidence for Jesus Christ is the changed life. And that was the title of his broadcast, Change Lives. And I've thought about that. I heard him say that at least 25 years ago. And I thought a lot about that. I do think he's right. The greatest evidence for the gospel is the changed life. And Tom just shared, you know, the disciples. And you talk about radical change in guys' lives. You look at who they were and where they came from and what they did and then what they did in the early chapters of Acts. It's incredible. All right. Jim, don't you think that that is uh, evidence of a reward and the joy that we're experiencing too in, in serving him, not just at that appearance, but uh, daily life and keep, mm. keeping Paul going, seeing mm. results of it. Mm. He's, he's delighted. Absolutely. Absolutely. In the midst of all the 
as he talked earlier in the book, the suffering, the hardship, being in prison and all of that, you know, very much. He keeps using the word we've seen it, we'll see it again in the, the, the second half of the book. Rejoice and joy keeps coming up. Keeps coming up. Father, we're grateful for the time today as we've thought about and processed and applied uh, this wonderful passage of Scripture. And our takeaway, as Jim said, our takeaway from it is that it matters how we live our lives. So um, that's such a simple thought, but it is really quite profound. It does matter. Our position is we're righteous in Christ. We put our faith in him. His work of uh, his death, burial, and resurrection is applied to our lives. Our standing is by faith we're righteous. And now we're called to live what our position is. That's what Paul's talking about. Help us to, to be serious about our walk with you, but our walk with you is characterized by a loving obedience. We desire to please you, Lord, because of everything you've done for us. And that process of transforming us into the image of the Lord Jesus just goes on. But we love you, and therefore we want to walk with you in obedience. And that makes, uh, that makes an incredible difference. And it matters then how we live because we are the light. We're holding forth the word of life for others to see. And, Lord, we become then your agents. We become your ambassadors. We represent you. We want to do that well. My prayer for these men is uh, they celebrate Thanksgiving with their families. Give them a thankful spirit. Help them to instill that into their kids and others. We just want to be thankful to you, even on a national day of Thanksgiving like tomorrow, for all that you've done for us and all that you mean to us. And I do pray for Doug and Sherry. The loss, is, it, it's just immeasurable. I cannot imagine what is happening now as they process all of this, this afternoon as they bury Paul, and I just pray for them. Give them encouragement. Give them uh, enablement. Give them grace. And, Lord, give them comfort. Second Corinthians talks about the comfort of God. May that be real. And, Lord, give them the, the faith and trust that you're still good, that you're going to use Paul's life, his short 23 years of life, for eternal good. We don't know what all that means, but help them to trust you with that. So we commit them to you. Thanks for these men. I ask your blessing on each one of them. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.